The Portland Insight Meditation Center is located in southeast Portland, Oregon. Robert Beatty has been the guiding teacher there since 1978. For more information and to access many more teachings available online, please visit portlandinsight.org. Here we go. Well, good morning. Here it is, the something of June. <laughs> I do know it's Father's Day. My father's been gone for a long time, 20 some years. But I do want to talk about the phenomenon of Father's Day today and these people who we think of as our fathers. So, Thanks for joining in. I am sitting in my very spacious backyard in my tent. I have the hat on because the sun on that quadrant of the tent is blinding. Just it's a huge halo of brilliance. <clears throat> so this poem came to me thinking about today. And for the Shakespeare buffs, you may well know it if you've seen As You Like It or played As You Like It, maybe played in it. You'll know this one. It's all male pronouns, but there really is no way to fix that. So here it is as it was written and passed down. And I think of it as a... Um, a statement from the awakened position of our circumstance here on, on the earth. All the world's a stage and all the men and women are merely players. They have their exits and their entrances and one man in his time plays many parts. His acts being seven ages. At first the infant mewling and puking in the nurse's arms. And then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and shining morning face creeping like snail unwillingly to school. And then the lover sighing like furnace with a woeful ballad made to his mistress's eyebrow. Then a soldier full of strange oaths and bearded like the pard. Jealous in honor, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth. And then the justice in fair round belly with good capon lined. With eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise saws and modern instances. And so he plays his part. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon with spectacles on nose and pouch on side, his youthful hose well saved a world too wide for his shrunk shank. And his big manly voice turning again towards childish treble pipes and whistles in his sound. Last scene of all that aims the ends this strange eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion, sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste. Sons everything. 
What about that? What about these roles that we play today and we've played in our lives? I was sitting playing Scrabble last night with Jennifer and Adrian. <clears throat> and I had a, a remembrance back to playing board games with my own kids when they were young, younger than Adrian. And those events came and went. They didn't last any longer than the moment they occurred in. So we're here for a brief time and we get to dance with each other. All the world's a stage and all the men and women are merely players. They have their exits and their entrances and one person in their time plays many parts. Their acts being seven ages. At first the infant mewling and puking in the nurse's arms. And then the whining school child with her satchel and shining morning face creeping like snail unwillingly to school. And then the lover sighing like furnace with a woeful ballad made to his mistress's eyebrow. Then a soldier full of strange oaths and bearded like the pard, jealous in honor, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation, even in the cannon's mouth. And then the justice in fair round belly with good cape on lined, with eyes severe and beard a formal cut, full of wise saws and modern instances. And so he plays his part. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon with spectacles on nose and pouch on side. His youthful hose well saved a world too wide for his shrunk shank. And his big manly voice turning again toward childish treble, pipes and whistles in his sound. Last scene of all that ends this strange eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion, sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, Sons, everything. I remember being forced to read this in high school and it, it had almost no meaning. Now I think of all my friends who've disappeared off the earth. They went off stage left or stage right or stage right here and then they were gone. <laughs> My stepdaughter and her friend getting up to go over to Nina's dad's house for the morning Father's Day event. Jeez, the t I got the guitar a little stuck this morning. Ah. Come on. <laughs> oh my, it's really stuck. <laughs> it's an interesting challenge. Where does this go? <laughs> oh, there we go. So, dear friends, in a world where everything 
is in constant utter change. When even our fathers disappear off the earth, fathers and mothers, where the great constant is inconstancy. So as we sing this, I invite you to reflect along with me. What does it really mean? It's not just a cute little ditty with a simple tune. It's a life-changing intention. You sure are beautiful on that screen. I take refuge in the Buddha, the one who shows me the way in this life. Namo Buddhaya, Namo Buddhaya, Namo Buddhaya. I take refuge in the Dharma, the way of understanding and love. Namo Dharmaya, Namo Dharmaya, Namo Dharmaya. I take refuge in the Sangha, the community of mindful harmony. Namo Sangaya, Namo Sangaya, Namo Sangaya. Now we get to do Now we get to do being ourselves, being what we really are. Being the mystery of awakeness. I just remembered had a sudden memory of a long time ago, 1972, I was in my second year of a master's in environmental studies. And I got a, uh, forget, an assistantship, I guess it's called, 
and uh, I ran the the dark room for the program, and I taught people how to print black and white prints. And I created a pictorial representation, the pictures I had taken of Toronto, which is where the city was. And uh, I wrote on the caption, the world is at the end of your senses. And someone crossed some of it out. And I think it was the Dean actually. The world is the end of your senses. <laughs> we did a lot of talking then about how it's impossible to say person in environment. The only, the only real way to say it is person slash environment or person environment because the, all the differentiations fall apart as soon as we go deep inside it all subject-object relationships are transient. So let us sit. Practice what the Buddha called bare attention. What if what's happening here is simply the mystery, the utterly mysterious awakeness of the universe. Manifesting itself through the six senses, the portholes on which what we call we, the portholes through which we experience the world. What if all there is, is this awareness? and the phenomena that arise in awareness. And what if all the forms that arise, including the one we call I and me and mine, are as they appear to be utterly transient. All the things we worry about, all the things we cling to, all those subtle tensions and less subtle tensions. What if we were to simply rest in the present moment and allow them to do their thing? That is, of course, or to do that is, of course, not necessarily right available when we first begin. We need something to do. So why not bring this mysterious awareness home to the body 
home to breathing. This breath right now. It doesn't require the tensing of any muscles. Mostly it requires remembering to remember. Each breath is or can become an invitation to radical aliveness, We share this breath with the crows, with the whales, with cows and dogs and cats. We participate in a communion-like way with all of life in every breath. And so we can pay attention, we can honor, we can inhabit each breath from its moment of emergence out of nothingness into life. 
all the way through rising and falling and then to disappearance. Thoughts then arise, we fall into trance, and then mindfulness arises and the trance vanishes. There is a certain persistence and dedication required to train the heart-mind in this way.
And while we notice thoughts, for the most part, the content of thoughts is irrelevant. We are really interested in the process of being a human being, not the content so much right here. We can approach mindfulness of in-breathing and out-breathing as we might approach a hammock, which we chance upon, perhaps in the woods, perhaps in a very familiar setting. And we just climb into that hammock and rest. In the same way, we can climb into concentration the mind easily abiding in the primary training object, the sensations of breathing. When there are moments of sound, like right now with this voice, we can switch to being aware of hearing. If there's any response to these words, we can notice that thinking. We might even like to put little word notes on things, rising, rising, falling, falling, hearing, hearing, 
Ultimately, though, our intention is to simply be present and awake with whatever happens. Sometimes mindfulness will notice the arising of a thought before it really even forms as a thought. Other times the thought will manifest and create papancha in the mind, mental proliferation. It could set off the fight-flight response or desire or disliking or fear. None of this needs a secondary or tertiary response or reaction. Just like in general, we don't 
respond negatively or we don't have a comment when a cloud interferes with the sun. So too, when the trance states of the mind come in, the past and future, opinions, liking, disliking, <clears throat> emotions. <clears throat> we are allowing the body and mind, the whole emotional self to relax, to calm down.
In this gardening of consciousness and the heart, through turning away from them, we weaken greed, hatred, and delusion. Through turning toward them, we strengthen non-greed, non-hatred, and wisdom. We strengthen generosity, we strengthen compassion. We strengthen the enlightenment factors. Mindfulness, this light of awareness that shines on everything without distinction. It just lights everything up. Curiosity that turns the mind toward the activities of the six sense doors that wonders what is going on. What a strange thing this life is. Persistence and energy. Sometimes you don't feel like sitting and then you do. Or as we sit here, remembering to remember and then making the effort of coming back. Joy, delight. When the sweet relief of awareness and concentration come to us, why not really spend time there, rest there? Concentration, when the mind settles in and decides to stay put. Tremendous inner satisfaction in that. Tranquility. Sometimes the mind simply becomes tranquil. You have in your life sat beside a lake which was in complete tranquility or experienced it in your heart, mind, thoughts, emotions. And equanimity, we come to that place, that capacity to accept things as they really are. We can accept the pleasant and the unpleasant just as they are.
And please now awaken to the reality of the body that sits here. Notice the temperatures that are available, the warmth and the coolness. Notice the pressure of the body pressing against the cushions or the floor. Notice where the tactile contact of clothing is apparent as soon as you look for it. And notice this miracle of breathing in and breathing out. You don't have to go out to the breath. You don't have to go find it. It's not as though the awareness comes from the head and goes down to the breath. It's actually with the breath itself. They co-arise. And the awareness is non-local. Please now allow awareness, invite awareness, mysteriously manifest awareness in what you call your hands and fingers. So much sensation. Crow sounds. And please now allow awareness to Inhabit your buttocks and thighs where they press against the chair. And your toes and feet. And your face, what you think of as your face. Your cheeks, lips, forehead, scalp, eyes, eyes. Maybe squint your eyes closed rather hard. Really feel how much life there is there. Squint them closed and then ever so mindfully, gently let them open. Though they don't, we can't let them open, can we? It takes an effort of will. So notice the intention and then activating that intention. Letting the eyes open till seeing happens. 
starts blurry and then objects form and then they're seeing. Seeing. We humans are very prone to living in delusions. And according to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, delusions are thoughts and perceptions, beliefs that continue to be held despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary. So among the great delusions are things can be permanent. I can make things last. And the non-delusion is anicca, everything is impermanent. And that's a radical truth. It's not a small truth. It's a truth that is, well, it's kind of mind boggling, really. The second delusion, it's possible to find enduring pleasure. That first handful of raspberries in the, the other day continued for the rest of life. That'd get to be a little much, wouldn't it? <laughs> Quickly. And the non-deluded mind, which is that there's, a, there's just a great deal of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness, of suffering, of, of challenge. Achan Tanisaro puts it, there's a great deal of stress. And another delusion that I have a self, that myself is an enduring something. That's a big one, isn't it? And the truth of anatta, not soul and not self, is, is really one of the most beautiful teachings from the Buddha. I frankly am rather tired of myself. <laughs> the things he, she, it worries about and gets tense about and they're all so ephemeral. So to awaken from our delusions is to awaken to reality. And this beautiful teaching allow, offers it to us in little bite-sized bits. I find watching the, the news interesting in terms of delusions. The deeply held beliefs that people have about what's true. And at least from where I sit, some, some of them are just, they're completely nuts. Deluded.
I once watched, this is some years ago, back when I had a controller on the TV and flipped channels because I was bored. And it was late at night and there were three very well-dressed gentlemen older than me at the time. They might've been my age now. And they were arguing with great intensity about what it was going to be like after the rapture. That this is what heaven will be like. And they, it, it was so interesting to watch because they were otherwise ordinary human beings, but they were so, they had ideas and they were locked into them. And then uh, of course I felt superior for a little while until it, another one of my deluded places became to light and I realized it's the same thing. I too, we all get caught in these belief structures that are uh, delusions. So I have a little bit of announcementing things to do before I invite Jim to do some movement. Have I got it here? Let's see if it'll work. I think it's set up properly. I have the digest here. Uh, Gregory and Molly are doing such a marvelous job with the digest. It comes out once a week, Mondays. And if you're not on the PIMC listserv, I invite you to become on it because uh, you'll get all of this and it will really keep you current. Just realized I could change my glasses and it would be much easier. Funny, I used to get irritated with my father always saying, wait a minute, I need to change my glasses. Here I am. Important announcement, first Saturday retreat news, coming Saturday, August 1st. Um, Robert Beattie and Kendall Summers will be teaching the first Sunday retreat on August 1st. More to be, more to be revealed. Monday night guest house, Jim is taking a hiatus on that. Qigong retreat happened. The Me and White Supremacy book is going on. It started a week ago. Uh, there's all kinds of things happening with our community. There's these, every morning I'm on at seven and then Mondays there's gym and then Tuesday mornings there's a, a, a peer led group. Uh, Tuesday nights, Boundless Heart with Gary. Wednesday, Wake Up with Gregory. Heart of Freedom with Doug. Lunchtime, Dharma Talk on Friday with Doyle and this is where we are right now. And there will soon be, um, this is Doyle coming up in the 14th, a candle is going to be doing a group at some, some evening, Tuesday or Thursday probably. Uh, we're in the final stages of negotiating that. So stay tuned for more teachings from Candle. Okay, I think that's what I have. What I propose to do is have Jim now do the movement and then uh, I'm going to uh, speak in in a, in a Dharma way, if I can, about fathers, this phenomenon of Father's Day. And I have a couple of poems, and I want to do a guided forgiveness slash loving kindness meditation as part of that. Oh, I realized I forgot a piece. <laughs> Ah. 
I come to you in this moment under the auspices, I guess would be the word, of the Portland Insight Meditation Community. And it's quite a community. There's a lot of things happening. Thank goodness we have Zoom. Um, there's no telling when we'll get back into our center. Um, I am, uh, who knows about delusions and beliefs, but I think we're going to have a very powerful second wave of coronavirus. Could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. So it could be months before we get back into the center. Um, and in the meantime, it still requires our loving support. So I invite you to feel into your heart. If, these, if, if you're being supported by PIMC, by these broadcasts, please consider supporting the center. And if you have a monthly gift already happening, consider whether you could uh, increase it a little bit. Um, that we are, we are going to need to increase our revenue by the end of the year. And we'll be doing a couple of fundraising events as well. But it's an ongoing thing. So I encourage you to practice this wonderful gesture of ah, toward your Dharma center. And also, uh, I, I am part of my denial of death. Um, I encourage you also, if you don't have a will, create a will. If you do have a will, think about PIMC and your end of life giving. Such uh, bequests can be incredibly useful in the life of an organization. So, Mr. Dalton, I have made you a co-host. Are you ready to launch? Now I am. Yes, thank you. <clears throat> so if you would like to uh, move and stretch and uh, open up your lungs and get some uh, fresh air flowing through, join me for some standing uh, movement. takes a little bit to get organized with the space. The last time uh, Robert was teasing me about his uh, nickname for me is Lee Pole, and he thought he made, made it up. But uh, it turns out that there was a person named Lee Pole, and I looked him up, and he was quite an interesting teacher. He was a, it's quite an interesting drinker. <laughs> Almost all of his uh, poems has had to do with alcohol, but uh, this one just touches on it a little bit. I wanted to read a poem from Lee Poe. Uh, he had a friend named Mang Wow John. I love Master Mang, free as a flower, flowing breeze. He is famous throughout the world. In my youth, he cast away official cap and carriage. Now a white-haired elder, he reclines amid pines and cloud. <clears throat> sort of like the poem that, uh, or the, the, the uh, quotation from As You Like It, uh, that he 
this this love for his friend flows through time, you know, in different stages. Now, drunk beneath the moon, he often attains sagehood. Lost among the flowers, he serves no lord. How can I aspire to such a high mountain? Here below, to his clear fragrance, I bow. So that, that's a, a Lee Poe poem. <laughs> so let's uh, get in touch with our feet. <clears throat> and <clears throat> get in touch with our breath. Robert talked about local awareness and non-local awareness. Local awareness would be bringing all of our attention into our feet and then moving the center of gravity over to one side and over to the other. Uh, that's more non-local. You know, you're just kind of moving your body as a whole, but then the impact of that is, is very uh, perceptible in the soles of your feet. So you bring local awareness to the soles of your feet and then this general openness of swaying to the right and swaying to the left, moving forward and moving back. The, the whole body has to cooperate to, to do something, to do not one thing, <laughs> to do a million things to, to, to glide forward and glide back. But then there's local awareness right in the uh, soles of the feet and you can hold that there with attention. Awareness has these amazing qualities, localized, general, and open, and everything in between. So <clears throat> we'll, we'll begin with a localized awareness uh, of our hands. We'll just raise a hand in front of us and look at the palm. And notice that you can localize awareness on cracks in your in the palm of your hand. Uh, there, there were palm readers uh, in the carnivals when I was a kid. The carnivals would come through Chicago and they'd have palm readers reading these lines. We can just notice how awareness can follow a line from one edge of your palm down to the other. But at the same time, you can open your awareness and be aware of all of the space beyond your hand, your, the space to the right and left of your hand, the space between the hand and your face and your eyes. And then drop that hand. And again, non-local awareness. All that space that you open to a moment ago is still there. You don't need a local awareness all the time. You can open to awareness on a wide spectrum. Bring both hands up in front of you so you can see both palms and shift local awareness, two objects in front of you, open, around you, beyond the hand, between the hand, and your face. And then lift your hands, keep your eyes on your hands, 
and then move out to the side. You can't focus when they start moving away. Then it's, then it's non-local awareness. You can feel your hands on the edge of your peripheral vision. So here's, here's um, awareness with non-local openness. Raise up the center and pause. Localize your awareness on your hands. Stay with the hands with your focus when you're on your with your eyes. And then as the hands move apart, you shift into non-local awareness to feel the edge of this circle of vision. Your eyes don't have to be focused. They can just be open to the periphery. Once more, raising the two hands, they come into focus right in an arm's length away. And we follow that. This local awareness can move. But then at a certain point, when we open the arms and feel the shoulders stretching out to opposite sides of the body, we, we keep the movement of the fingers in non-local awareness, both sides at the same time. So what is, so who's in charge here? What is awareness? How does it know how to go specific, how to go general? We, that, that's wisdom. <laughs> and the, the wisdom of the body, you know, if we reach up to one side and lift one heel off the floor, the body knows how to balance on one leg. And then we bring that hand down to the center, let it fall to the side, and we're, we have non-local awareness of balance with both feet engaged in the floor, and then lift the other hand, pause and feel inside there's something called balance there's some feel you know you're not in a da in danger but one heel is off the floor and all the weights on one leg and you have this uh, this feeling of, of uh, extension and this feeling of substance out in front of you on one side but it's not dangerous you, there, there's a compensation in the non-local awareness of this body is balanced. And then let it come back. So learning to shift between the local, so uh, if, if instructions are given to sink into the knees, to open the arms and relax the shoulders. Just like lightning. Your, your awareness moves from the knees to the uh, shoulders. The hands change, the wrists change, and you see that. And then you're aware of the whole body sinking, the body lifting, specifically the shoulders relaxing, the wrists relax. There's all this lightning move of awareness. It just has no limitation almost. I'm sure it has limitations, but it's amazingly fast. It's hard to verb, it, the, the limitation is in my ability to verbalize. 
Okay. Sinking down. We open to the side. And again, keep your hands on the edge of your peripheral vision in this non-local awareness until they're up above your head. And then as they come down, focus on the space right between your hands. And that's the, the, the ability that we shift to local. And then we shift to non-local. Go back to the periphery. And come down. Specific. I'm moving at the same speed with the left hand as the right. My eyes are checking that. My shoulders are checking that in a way. There's an intelligence in the shoulders that knows now I'm opening. I'm overhead. There's a feeling in the rib cage, a feeling in the shoulders, interoception. And then that, that's what's going on inside the skin. And coming down into the field of vision, there's perception. It seems as if my hands are out there. Objects of vision, perception. But the awareness goes to the interoception. I let my arms relax and hang from the shoulders. And the whole body can feel balanced and feel relaxed. And then local awareness on the, on the breath. And usually we, we give instructions or we get instructions from our teachers to, to, to focus on the, on the tip of the nose or the upper lip or the rising of the rib cage underneath the collarbone or the diaphragm. We're given a, a local goal, a, a purpose, bringing the awareness into one focus locally on one point. But what happens is the, the effect of that is the whole body can then just shift into non-local acceptance of a standing, balanced form with no stress, no sense of mind or need or getting something or pushing to find something, no problem to be solved. Just balanced and easy. So let's sink again. Open the arms, breathing in, coming down the center, noticing the visual pattern of the two hands, then opening to the side, just feeling the whole circle of attention and then the focused attention. And then the open and focused, easily shifting from one to the other. Then bringing our hands together in gratitude for lungs and uh, pliable joints that can move in all directions. Gratitude for our breath, the breath of life, and our sangha practicing together. Thank you very much. Have a good week. Be safe. Stay home.
Thank you, Jim. You're welcome. So, Mr. Beatty is back. Oh, I've been passing, passing sorry, the time. I've been I've been talking to you as I was fixing things back up. To, I tried an experiment today by turning the the computer around to face the other camera. And so you were live to Facebook and YouTube as well as the Zoom audience, Jim. And then I had to reset it all here. And I was talking to you as I did that and I didn't have my uh, microphone on. So there you have it. There's a lot of buttons. There's a lot of buttons in this world. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right, oh, this is a bit much. There. <clears throat> All right. Hi, everybody. Thank you, Jim. Please, let me think about this. Please raise your hand. I'll just do a quick look. Uh, if your father is still alive. So maybe less than half on screen one. Significantly less than half on screen two. And screen three, I can't tell. Huh. Well, my dad's been gone at least 25 to close my door. It's a little cool. At least 25 years. I don't remember do dates very well, but it's a long time. I want to talk a little bit about him today. No, I don't have time to pat a black dog. Go away. Go, go, go. Right now. Go. Good dog. <laughs> All righty. Poem. A Father and Daughter. This is by Elsa Brooks. I think it was in The Sun magazine. And I'm just going to read it once. She 
She wakes up to the sound of crying muffled in the darkness. She takes tentative steps to the room upstairs. It's her father. Bottles on the floor, cigarette in his hand. The room is subdued, smoky. She turns to leave as silently as she walked in. He whispers, I'm sorry. Tears flow freely, streaking her cheeks. She runs to hug him. Four years later, and they're still hugging. They still cry together, but now they can laugh together, take trips together, play cards together, friends as well as family. They live in a small brown house. It was so cold, so empty. She still cries on her own. So does he. He has a son who can't be with him, who feels guilty for loving him, a wife that despises him, but a daughter who can't live without him. He's her rock, her savior, her knight in shining armor. She is the light of his life, the apple of his eye, his second chance, his path to redemption. And I'll send these to the listserv. And then, where's the second one? Recent. This is Kathy Kelly from The Sun Magazine, February 2005. My father was the second oldest of seven children. His mother died of a brain tumor when he was 17. His father, a violent alcoholic who had beaten his wife, promptly abandoned the children. The younger ones were placed in foster care in the Catholic home for working boys. My dad kept track of them all, hoping to bring them together under one roof someday. He never did. My grandfather, my grandfather held an inexplicable grudge against my father. He would mail dad postcards from seaports around the world that read, Dear Jim, I'm alive, no thanks to you. Toward the end of his life, my grandfather lived on the streets in New York City. My dad paid the owner of a flop house my grandfather frequented to make sure his father always had a meal and a bed. My grandfather died in that flop house of tuberculosis sometime in the 30s. My father did not tell me these stories until I had kids of my own. By then I was mad at my dad because of his own, his own drinking, which had made, out of, made our home a scary place for me as a child. I was mad at my mom because she'd been so passive, hardly ever getting out of bed. I was mad at my brother for leaving home and never looking back. I was mad at my sister for being everyone's favorite. I felt the world owed me one big apology. My mom had plenty of time to apologize as she lay dying, but she didn't. My father didn't apologize for his drinking, but he did get sober. That was apology enough for me. It was a pleasure to listen to him hum a tune as he stood on a ladder in my house, making electrical repairs for me and the kids. 
I'm older now, and I have learned what a mistake it is to wait around for people who for people to apologize. I am older now, and I've learned what a mistake it is to wait around for people to apologize. A wise person once said that holding on to anger is like eating rat poison and expecting the rat to die. No longer do I look down on people who offended me, extending forgiveness from my lofty perch. I understand now how limited we all are by circumstances, time, place, history, and luck. We humans are a frail lot. Compassion seems to be the only thing that saves us. I'm older now and have learned what a mistake it is to wait around for people to apologize. A wise person once said that holding on to anger is like eating rat poison and expecting the rats to die. No longer do I look down on people who offend me, extending my forgiveness from my lofty perch. I understand now how limited we all are by circumstances, time, place, history, and luck. We humans are a frail lot. Compassion seems to be the only thing that saves us. Hmm. I'm getting together with my son and his partner and grandkids today and Fern's dad. So there will be two grandpas and one father. Five o'clock out at my son's house in Forest Grove, west of here. And I find myself thinking about my father today. It has been a long time since he died. He died, we think, of a heart attack. He had uh, bad emphysema and a lifetime of alcoholic drinking that never stopped. On at least 20 trips back to visit my parents in Montreal, I prepared ahead of time what I would say. And as, as I became trained as a therapist and I worked in drug and alcohol treatment, and I'd always, I'd always go wanting to get his attention. 
One of the last times, it's a long time ago now. Boy, it's a long time ago, over 30 years. He's, maybe he's been dead longer than I think. Um, I said to him, he had come to visit, it was the one time he and my mother came to visit when my son Luke was six months old. I said, I, I got my mother out of the house. My mother and my then wife uh, went to see Dr. Zhivago so in the theater, so you can tell how long ago this was. And I said to him, you know, Dad, I'm so worried about your drinking. It looks to me like slow suicide. And his reply was, why, hell, Robert, what do I have to live for? <laughs> that was not the answer I was prepared for. I was prepared for lots of different answers. He'd often surprise me with the bluntness of his honesty. What do I have to live for? And I said, well, now you have a, you know, you have a grandson. And, and he said, yes, and you live 3,000 miles away. And uh, I'm not well, I can't travel easily. And, and then the conversation veered over into why I had to leave Quebec. And, um, and by then I was crying and not very much helped anybody. And I got a ton from my father. He taught me to do woodwork. He taught me basic ethics. He was really a quite ethical guy. The, 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 I've shared this several times in Dharma talks. He, uh, in that time he was here, I asked him, what would be your wisdom for me? You know, if, if you were going to put it in just a few sentences. And he thought for a while. And then he said, try not to hurt anybody. And don't cheat any more than you have to. That's a pretty interesting statement from a person who'd been around the block a few times. So he had a terrible illness. Uh, it was there before he, well, when he was courting my mother, we have one letter from then and, and it's clear he was, he was uh, already drinking in an alcoholic fashion. Um, so, so that had tremendous repercussions. He, however, um, moved from downtown Montreal. He, he, he had a high school education, a not actually high school commercial, didn't finish high school. And he became the general manager of a company with 80 trucks. So he was really smart. They distributed uh, paperback, you know, paperbacks and magazines and so on. We got in big trouble with the Catholic Church because he, uh, he distributed a smut, as they put it, uh, because he distributed Playboy and worse than Playboy was Batman comics. That was just horrendous sin. So, I learned a lot from him. I learned, uh, I learned to work hard. I learned to be honest. Um, 
I learned to 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 um to do what I said I would to do my best to do what I said I was going to do and uh, also to be somewhat dependable. And the point I want to come to, which is really the essence of what I want to say today is that all the world's a stage poem. Robert Earl Beattie, which was his name, he went by Earl, was the person who in this lifetime played the role of my father. He wasn't my father. He was just an ordinary guy who did the ordinary things of getting married and having children and struggling with a terrible illness. And, and then he was gone. And he's been gone ever since then. And I don't think he's coming back. I'm pretty convinced he's, he's really done. And it's, it took a long time. I don't, I, and I wouldn't claim completion, but um, there was a time when I held great animosity toward him for his quote failures and his inadequacy and was, a lot happened on that one trip when they came out to visit. I also asked him, I was a, a, making a living as a therapist and teaching meditation. And um, I asked him for his blessing on my work. I said, I, I want something from you. I, I don't know what it is, but, but I think of it as I'd like you, your blessing on what I'm doing. And he said, oh, hell, Robert. You can't expect me to understand that psychology stuff, but you're making a living and I don't think you're hurting anybody. That was my dad's blessing. So what about this shift from my father into the person who in this lifetime played a role of my father? Reminds me of a, it's funny the way these things come back. I've spoken of this many times in, in uh, Dharma Talks. My 40th birthday, <laughs> 32 years ago, hard to, hard to believe that's true, but yes. My then wife got me the best, the best card I ever saw. And it said, happy 40th birthday, warning. Uh, warning, important information inside, something like that. And then one opened it and it said, the warranty on your childhood neurosis is over. You can no longer blame your parents. And that was at a time when I still had some blaming of my parents happening. I wanted them to have been different and so on. But they weren't different. They were who they were. And they did a good enough job because I wound up functional. So I'm thinking of Father's Day as a, an opportunity to honor those people who in this lifetime played the role of father and 
if there is animosity left, if there are cherished uh, resentments left over, why not take this as an opportunity to at least begin uh, a phase of, of really relinquishing it? Before long, we're going to relinquish everything. And within a hundred years, presuming there are human beings in a hundred years, which I think is in question, um, no one will even know we existed or our fathers existed. So the, the question is, how do I want to live my life and what legacy do I want to leave in terms of uh, relinquishing resentment and finding a place of love for all beings? So let's do a little guided meditation together. It's a little frustrating to me to not be in person because I, with this kind of meditation, I love to play a little music in the background, but it's, it hasn't worked that well when I've tried it in the past. So let's just be here in the relative quiet of where we are. Please come home to your body. Take a moment if your eyes are open to look around and land in this moment of seeing. And maybe take your hands and rub them together a little bit as though you were washing them. And Why not have them love each other? And then take a moment maybe to look at them. Half of the genetic code that brings you these hands, that is in every cell in these hands, comes from the person who in this lifetime played the role of father. <coughs> and I guess it would be a quarter of the DNA in here comes from the person who played his father. And so it is back through endless, almost endless billions of years. And coming home now to sitting here and breathing in and out, letting the body breathe. We are the persons who share the this moment in the sun, this moment of consciousness. Countless generations 
have taken care of their young for better or for worse and launched them off into the world, held on to them, rejected them early, gave them a lot, gave them a little. And if you have participated in the child-making and rearing process, there may be beings who look upon you as father or mother. And inevitably, no matter how well you've done, they have wounds from your unfinishedness. Should you feel guilty about your unfinishedness? Would that serve any purpose? Should you descend into shame for, oh, I did this wrong and I did that wrong and it's my fault that they're like this and so on? Or does it make more sense in both directions, back in time to our fathers, forward in time to our children, And if we haven't had children, we've still had a tremendous effect on life. We can still understand our place in a way in this line of birth, life and death. And how do we move toward freedom? How do we move toward accepting life on its own terms? One way is through this present moment. This moment is like this. There's the breath of this moment. The thoughts of this moment the intentions of this moment, the sounds of this moment, the sensations in the body of this moment. It's just now. And please notice if you have any any leftover sense of resentment toward your father. And of course, there's a whole spectrum of potential betrayals. There may well be some among us who had very bad relationships with father, in which case 
Take this very lightly. And forgiveness doesn't mean forgetting. It doesn't mean letting someone back into your life that you finally found a way to get out. What it means is letting go of the knot in your own heart so you can live happily in the present moment. So I invite you in a safe way for those for whom there's been serious trauma, it might be useful to imagine that you're doing this through a computer screen or maybe through the inch and a half thick plastic at the bank. Protect yourself if you need to. And there's this person who in this lifetime played the role of father It may not be the person who raised you also. Some, some of us don't know our fathers or don't know who they were. Then there might've been a stepfather. Hmm. But in the, in the safety and grounding of this moment, come home to your body as it sits here And think about this person who in this lifetime played the role of father. What are your attitudes toward him? Is it perhaps a relief that he's dead? Or do you miss him every day in some small or big way? Are there conversations you wish you'd had or conversation you'd still like to have that you're not quite getting around to? And in the safe realm of your own imagination, Notice what comes to mind when you think of this person who in this lifetime played the role of your father. Is there conversation to be had right now? Is there something you really, really want to say to him? Time and distance, even death, is no obstacle to saying what you've needed to say. Asking the questions you've needed to ask. Remembering, and this is the big shift. Remembering that this is the person, the flawed, ordinary, confused, struggling human being 
who in this lifetime played the role of father or is playing the role of father. And remember that when it comes to forgiveness, it's not about really forgiving the other person. It's about relinquishing the suffering at our end. And one of the ways that meditation really helps us with this is that we gradually come, and sometimes it happens in big leaps, we come to the realization that the past is really over. The past exists as a class of thoughts in this moment. There really is no such thing as the past. The influences of the past are in our bodies and in our minds and memories. But even 30 seconds ago is as far away as the dinosaurs, it's gone. So he hurt me, he abused me, he disappointed me. These are all ways of clinging to suffering. Clinging to suffering. And in your imaginary heart, your, your mind's eye, you might imagine saying to this person who in this lifetime played the role of father, an ordinary flawed human being who I would say did his best given the conditioning he had You might ask what he has to say about what happened. And you can do that now, or you could do that in journaling, in a book, in, a, in writing, or you might even have dreams about this after this kind of reflection. You could imagine him saying all those things that you always wished he'd said that no doubt he would have said if he hadn't been so damaged and injured. And sometimes there's the room and space and purpose to say, I accept that you did what you did, that you didn't do the things you didn't do. I am accepting that the past was the past and it's over. And so I'm going to put down, I'm going to open my hand and relinquish the burning coal of resentment and hatred. I'm going to step into happiness in my own life and let the past be over. And somehow, it can be so important to remember this is a person who in this lifetime played the role 
of father. So different from my father. And I don't know about past and future lives. I do know that in the traditional teachings, there's a, a teaching, a belief that in this great long, infinitely long line of rebirth and death, every being has been our father and we have been every, birth, every being's father and mother and child and daughter and son. Whether we know that to be true or not, it can be comforting. All the world is a stage and all the men and women are merely players. We have our exits and our entrances. And each of us in our lifetime plays many parts. And so let us aspire toward relinquishing the burning coal of hatred. And the word forgive is kind of fraught. It's got a lot of Christian overtones. But if it works for you, you might say to this person in your imagination who in this lifetime played the role of father, I forgive you. I, access, I accept you did the best you could given everything. And I'm going to do my best to relinquish any hatred and resentment of you. And again, it doesn't mean you don't keep your boundaries. It doesn't mean you call someone up again necessarily. It just means you relax your own heart. I forgive you. Please forgive me for my failings. And so now please, knowing that you can pick this up at any time, it's really just a decision, it's an intention. Let's thank this inner process, this father of the inner world. Thank you. Thank you for coming to be here and now setting them free. I set you free. And then discovering that here you are in the company of others on Zoom and Facebook and YouTube. It's now, it's you here in this present moment. Where I am, it's with the heat from the tent and the sun, the dappled images of leaves blowing in the wind, a body that breathes, Please join me in two or three really deep breaths. And notice that the breaths only take place now.
And so it is a, an artificial day that we have, to which we attribute a meaning Father's Day. Perhaps a good reminder, an opportunity to bring to heart and mind the person who in this lifetime played the role of father. So I am now going to invite you to share if you have a response to this or a question, a prayer, maybe a little dance. Is there something you'd like to bring to this community about this person who in this lifetime played the role of father? Please just unmute yourself and speak if you want to. Hi, Robert. It's Dave. Hello, Dave. Hi. Um, Father's Day is complicated for me. <laughs> um, to use your terms, I have two stages of person that played the role of father. There was my biological father until I was nine and then uh, a man that I'm not related to was basically he started as a neighbor uh, and he's played the role of father ever since um, and it's it's complicated <laughs> sounds like it um, the first father did some damage and and then vanished um, for to, to evade the law basically <laughs> uh, and I haven't seen him since but he's still out there I know he's still out there um, he was eventually caught and and now there's all this like you know tracking and stuff so i know he's out there uh and i used to be angry but i don't think i am anymore i'm more just sort of sad uh and i guess i pity him if that's not a horrible thing to say uh related to compassion yeah yeah, he's, uh, I think in scientific terms, he's called a crazy person. Um, <laughs> he's all wrapped up in, in different delusions and uh, narcissism. And uh, my aunt says he's a sociopath. I don't, I don't know. Um, but it, it, it makes me sad because I'm fairly certain there will never be a chance for him to wake up and realize there's family that he could be with. Um, yeah. And at the same time, as a father, I love Father's Day because <laughs> I love my kids and they're amazing. Uh, so complicated 
That's all. Thank you. Oh my goodness, I just turned on the chat from Jeannie, Jeannie Barnes. My dad is 101 and just phoned me. Wow. I just had, a, in response to that, I had a moment of sadness and, and uh, like, mm. My, <laughs> my parents are gone so long. Robert, this is Mary. Hello, Mary. I see you. Hi. Um, my father was really not a bad dad at all. Um, but I notice that um, the best way for me to relate to him is as a as um as a boy and the pictures that i have of him in my house are almost all of him as a small child huh and and i i i love the boy that he was and i'm sad um for um what he didn't get growing up um, and whatever wounding he received, um, you know, in the war and, um, in, in a difficult world. Um, so anyway, uh, that's how I see him and that's how I love him. Thank and I, I'm grateful for the fact that he did the best he could. Mm. Was he in combat? Um, he wasn't in combat directly, but he learned all the lessons of man's inhumanity to man. Uh -huh. uh, he went back twice. He was at the, uh, he hit the tail end of World War II. And then um, with, uh, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know the true story, but he went into the Korean War um, um, with four children under five and me um, on the way. <laughs> and um, so I didn't even see him for, you know, the first couple months of my life. Wow. It was kind of um, a difficult thing for my mother to grasp that he needed to do that. So were you the sixth? The fifth. You were the fifth. Yeah, I was the last. I was the baby. She was tired. Oh. Can you imagine? Oh. Uh. It was child management at best. It was very yeah. difficult to mother um, five babies uh, um, under five. 
by yourself. So yeah, those were hard times, but everyone did their best. Mm -hmm. I do. I do know that, as we all do. Thank you, Mary. Thanks to the mothers and fathers. Amen. Thank you. Hi, Robert. Hello. It's Carol. Hello, Carol. Um, my father was born in Saskatchewan, and he was one of 15 children on a farm. And unlike most of his brothers and sisters, he moved to the coast and went to university. So I realized that he was very separated from his family in terms of love and support. And um, his mother died very young, probably from exhaustion. And so um, my recollection of him is that he was rather cool, not very affectionate and loving, which he probably never got himself. And my mother was an alcoholic. Mm. And my father lived in denial and the children had to deal with her qualities as an alcoholic and he was not very supportive of us and um, i really resented that a great deal and then as an adult um, i went to a wonderful uh, weekend of psychodrama where people you could choose people to be uh -huh. the you need to work things out with yeah so I was very fortunate to able to express without worrying about wounding two people who were my parents and I was able to get out much of the anger towards my father and my mother. But mm. I was more angry with my father than my mother. I felt she was the broken one and he was in denial and not supporting us. And uh, over the years. I've really felt for the quality or the lack of quality in his life because of that denial. And I've grown more compassionate. But where it did influence me, as I noticed in, in hindsight, is it did affect my relationship with men. I think that I look at some of the men in my early 20s and I think I was looking for my father. Mm -hmm. So it was messy. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. And I remember one instance where I had two boys as a parent and uh, I walked into, I was having a rough day 
and I walked into the living room and my husband and my two sons, who were teenagers at the time, were all madly reading and they kind of looked up at me and then looked back on their books. And I was quite upset that they didn't read my face and see that I needed attending to, that I was hurting in some particular way. And I got very upset about it in a bigger way than I thought was appropriate. And then I reflected on that and realized that they didn't belong in that room at all. It was my father mm. not noticing my pain. Wow. So those things get very mixed up together. And um, I'm very grateful for the psychodrama. And that really, really, I'm sure, saved a lot of time in my life. Mm -hmm. My brother, no two kids are brought up the same, even though in the same family. But my brother still has resentment and bitterness about my dad. And I'm sorry for that. Mm -hmm. I'm very grateful that I was able to feel sad for him. Very sad. Thank you. <laughs> was that here in Portland you did the psychodrama? No, in Vancouver, BC. Mm. It was a great experience. Yeah. I had a friend who did that for years. Maybe she still does, actually. Ruth Sachin Orion, or Ruth, she changed her name after divorce. But yeah, yeah. Friedel. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that beautiful story of, of, awake, of waking up. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. Well, we've come to a little afternoon. Anybody sitting on something that it would be, or anything pressing at your heart that you'd like to share before we end? Robert, this is Had. Hi, Had. I I want to. I I have profound good fortune. <clears throat> I just had a wonderful Zoom call that I was invited to by my son and daughter and stepson and wife and granddaughter. We're all across the country right now, and so that I just want to acknowledge that good fortune that came to be, and we all got to talk though we're in different physical places analogous to like the way we get to be Sangha here in our own home in isolation and together. But I, I mo foremost want to express my profound love and appreciation of my father. We, I was a, like many of us, a post-World War II baby boomer and the Vietnam War happened and my father and I saw went opposite directions. He was a veteran of World War II and blah, you know the story. And then in the 80s, he looked me in the eye and he said, had we had no business being in Vietnam after he went to the Vietnam War Memorial in DC. And he then died of cancer in 92. He was an incredible family doctor of osteopathy. And I was regretting the schism of our life, the separation. And since then I started, as you know, the gold mine meditation, teaching people with brain injury, mindfulness meditation. And I'm so, I, I absolutely feel his presence with me in support of what I'm doing and aligned with what I'm doing for healing. Mm. So I, I just want to express profound love and appreciation for Dr. Walmer and all the great things he did in his life. Although we went different paths, we were you know very separate, but the love was expressed at the end of life and is there now for Wonderful. what that means. Thank, 
Thank you, Had. One more person, perhaps, if there is, and then we'll end. Well, let us end with a minute or so of Om. Om that vibrates in the heart and also in the throat and in the crown of the head. <clears throat> let's actually, let's do a Sufi, a Sufi chant. It's a little more complex. It starts with the sound who which vibrates really in the heart, who, and then it goes to ah, <coughs> and then om, which vibrates at the top. And we'll, we can't really do it together given the, the uh, time delay, but we can, we can have some kind of fun with it. So I'm going to unmute everybody and we'll go who, ah, om, and then it will become, and then, and we can do it together to the degree we can for a time or two, and then let it just be a random who, ah, om. So let's join together with our voices and the vibration in our bodies. Unmuting. There we go. Wonderful rest of day. Whoop, the gong continues. Timer. Perhaps I'll see you tomorrow morning at seven o'clock. Happy Father's Day. Have a fun have Happy a Father's, Father's Day. Day. Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Thanks for coming to the party. Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day back to you. Thank you. The Portland Insight Meditation Center is a 501c3 nonprofit organization and is funded entirely through donation. If you'd like to give, please visit portlandinsight.org and click the Donate Now button at the top right. Through your generosity, we can continue to offer these teachings, and we are so grateful for your support.